bring our attention back here to the Spirit, to each other, to become aware of what's going on inside of ourselves. I'm going to invite you to respond to these questions. If you'll stand up, please. And this is a way for us to center ourselves, to bring our, our awareness here, to recognize what it is we are about here. So I'll read the top line. Jordan, if you could throw that first slide up there. I'll read what's in the small, and then everyone will respond with what is in bold print. Friends, who is it that you seek? Do you seek God with all your heart? Do you seek God with all your soul? Do you seek God with all your mind? Do you seek God with all your strength? God, you have heard our confession. We say this with trembling and human, humble hearts. But it is you that we seek this morning. Not our own good, although we are desperate without you. God, we seek you. And wait with hope and faith to receive all that flows from knowing and encountering you. And so as we encounter you with our songs, with the preaching of the word, with the taking of the fellowship meal today, reveal yourself to us and make our confession true. We pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. So Jane and I rolled in last night after many thousands of miles traveling with a group of 12, Aaron, where's Aaron? Aaron is here. He was with us on the trip. Ben's been on the trip before. Jordan's been on the trip before. But we took a dozen of us. We started off here three weeks ago, and we headed west. And uh, one, of my, one of my favorite songs that I've always had in my head as soon as I hit the Rockies is uh, John Denver, uh, Rocky Mountain High. He was born in the summer of his 27th year, coming home to a place he'd never been before. And Rocky Mountain High is this anthem of conversion. It's an anthem of being born again. It's an anthem of what an encounter with nature can do with you and for you. Today we talk about a very different conversion, but a conversion nonetheless. And while it may be tenuous to draw a comparison between John Denver and Paul the Apostle, they are both examples of conversion, and they're both examples, if you listen to the lyrics of the song, of conversion that comes at a cost. And so that's what we're looking at today as we study Acts. Those of you who are visiting, we're really glad you're here. My name is John Ray. Again, I'm one of the elders here at Grace Church. I'm in charge of the teaching team. Um, if you're watching on Facebook Live or listening on the podcast, we're exceptionally glad you've chosen to join with us. We know a lot of people are traveling in the summer, so if you're listening to this as you're driving, um, welcome to this. This summer we have been asking Acts questions. We're studying the first half of the book of Acts this summer. We'll finish up next summer, Lord willing. And we're letting Acts ask us questions. The last three weeks we've been exceptionally blessed with the speakers and the people that have shared 
along this. But this week we get, we get to a turning point in our text. It's almost as if a different author takes over. It's almost as if the author of the first eight chapters tags out and we have another author come in. Because the change in the text, while subtle if we're not paying attention, if we are paying attention, seems dramatic. Paul, John, the other apostles have been the primary principal characters in the first eight chapters. And the, the, the action has centered around the community of faith, how the community was responding to the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the persecution and backlash that was coming. But now, starting with chapter 9, we, we, we see a tremendous shift in tone, we see a, a shift in the action, and we see a shift in the principal characters here. Because it shifts from Paul and John. Now, they'll still be included, and they'll still, we'll still read about them later on. But the principal character is now going to become this person, Paul. Or as he is introduced at the end before of Saul. And in the spirit of dialogue, here at Grace Church, we talk a lot about um, not just us reading Scripture, but letting Scripture read us. There's a dialogue that comes from that. There's a lot of question asking. Sometimes we don't get answers. Sometimes our answers produce further questions. But this text in particular has me asking a lot of questions. So let's look at that and we will we'll talk about these as we go along. So we're looking at Acts chapter 9. Uh, if, you're, if you're reading along, we're, we're reading from the message this summer using a different version, a different translation to kind of help... Uh, and give us perspective on the, on the translation that we normally use. With this, Peterson's, uh, Peterson's translation in particular lends itself well to the story that we're doing. But just listen to it as a story as we go, and we'll stop along the way and make some observations. So we remember Saul. We were introduced to Saul. He was holding the cloaks of the people who stoned Stephen to death. And then it changes Chapter 9, all this time Saul was breathing down the necks of the master's disciples out for the kill. He went to the chief priest, got arrest warrants to take to the meeting places in Damascus so that he found anyone there belonging to the way, whether men or women, he could arrest them and bring them to Jerusalem. Hard stop. Here's the first question. How many of you call yourselves followers of the way? Okay. But, I mean, normally we say, if they say, what's your faith, what do you believe, we would call ourselves Christians, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. However, what we see here in the initial stages, at least, nobody was called a Christian yet. This group of Jesus followers were identified, at least initially here, as followers of the way, and I think this is a particular importance that we look at this because at its heart, Christianity is a practice. At its heart, Christianity is a way of being. It's a way of thinking. It's a way of imagining. It's a way of acting. It's a way of loving. It's a way of giving. It's a way of receiving. And in our world, in particular, the polarization that takes place, we divide into camps along ideological lines, uh, 
that put the emphasis not necessarily on how you live, but what you think. This ought to bring us up short when we read this and understand that they were primarily identified, the people who were following Jesus, the people who were filled and embodying the Holy Spirit, were primarily identified by how they lived, what they did. Honestly, all, I wish we could return to this a little bit more. I wish that our language, we could, we could discipline our language that we would understand that following Christ is a practice. It's a way of living. And that this would become so clear, this would become so evident that they would, people would look at us and instead of saying Christian or non-Christian, they would say follower of the way of Jesus with that. But let's keep going. Verse 3, he set off. When he got to the outskirts of Damascus, he was suddenly dazed by a blinding flash of light. As he fell to the ground, he heard a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you out to get me? He said, who are you, master? I am Jesus, the one you were hunting down. I want you to get up and enter the city. In the city, you'll be told what to do next. His companions stood dumbstruck. They could hear the sound but couldn't see anyone while Saul, picking himself off the ground, found himself stone blind. They had to take him by the hand and lead him into Damascus. He continued blind for three days. He ate nothing, drank nothing. Um, how many of you have conversion envy? <laughs> right? Like the testimony, the person who gets up and shares a testimony of how they were dramatically saved, how they had a dramatic encounter with Jesus. You know, they used to be the drug dealer, or they used to be the prostitute, or they used to be, you know, the Satan worshiper, and then Jesus showed up and everything changed, and they had this dramatic conversion. I, I got to tell you, I conversion envy, right? Mine wasn't like that at all. As a matter of fact, if you ask me, and I've been asked this before, when were you saved? I'm like, now? Like, I'm, it, I mean, I, I know when I was baptized, and I, and I hold on to that, and I, and I recognize some definite spiritual milestones in my life, but if you were to ask me, when was I blind to Jesus, to when I saw Jesus, I'm like, Lots. Lots of times. And honestly, it's still going on. I mean, we even call this the Damascus Road experience, right? Like it's cliche in our society when someone has a, a dramatic conversion. Well, one thing we need to recognize, first of all, is this is not the norm that we see. And second of all, even with Paul, even Paul's Damascus Road experience is not a Damascus Road experience. In this sense, it's not just the one thing. Because what we're going to see through the rest of the chapter is it starts there on the road, or as I think we see, it starts before the road, and it continues on after. It's not yet complete. So let's continue with the text. There was a disciple in Damascus by the name of Ananias, obviously not the Ananias who was struck dead a few chapters ago. The master spoke to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, master, he answered, get up and go over to Straight Street, ask 
at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus. His name is Saul. He's there praying. He has just had a dream in which he saw a man named Ananias enter the house, lay hands on him so he could see again. Ananias protested. Master, you can't be serious. Everyone's talking about this man and the terrible things he's been doing, his reign of terror against you people, against your people in Jerusalem. And now he's shown up here with papers from the chief priests that give him license to do the same to us. But the master said, don't argue. Um, let's pause here. Ananias, we don't hear much about him before or anything or anything after, but apparently he is a figure of incredible intimacy with God. Again, if we just see him as part of Saul's story, we miss out on something here. Because here we have a disciple in Damascus, not in Jerusalem. So the practice of the way has spread beyond the borders. We knew that. We knew with the persecution it sent people out. We have a person who's in Damascus, in this city, who is on conversational terms with God. And we don't see this a lot, y'all. I mean, think about the other people who have argued with God in this manner. Who comes to mind? Jonah? Moses? Jacob? Abraham? Right? The, these heroes of the faith. These people that, that have entire chapters written about them. These people who delivered people out of Egypt or established a new covenant, a new way of going. And yet, here's Ananias, this person that we don't hear about before, and we don't hear about after, who has this same kind of relationship. This is significant in demonstrating how the Spirit is now spreading out. How that experience of the conversational experience with God is no longer retained just for the super-spiritual just for the heroes, but it's literally transcending on the pedestrian, suburban, everyday followers of God. Y'all, that's us. So while we may not see ourselves in Paul's dramatic Damascus Road experience with God, we can, and I believe should, look for ourselves in Ananias, and as we're to see just a little bit later in Barnabas. But God continues. He says, don't argue, Ananias. Go, I have picked him as my personal representative to non-Jews and kings and Jews. And now I'm about to show him what he's in for, the hard suffering that goes with this job. Uh, not much of a sales pitch, right? <laughs> hey, Saul, get up and follow me, and I promise there's going to be loads of suffering. And I'll even throw in a martyr's death, no extra charge. Who's with me? Right? Like, like that's hardly a sales pitch for following Jesus. I'm going to show you how much you're going to suffer for my sake. And yet, we see Paul responding. And what was it that Paul suffered? Because this is no empty threat on God's behalf, Right? Because all of us, most of us here at least, have had an exposure to the Bible, we understand what Paul went through. He even gives a list of them, shipwrecked, beaten, abandoned, imprisoned. He goes on at length in his letters to come about what he suffered. But y'all, I don't think that was the worst of it. 
I don't think that's the worst of it. And to understand what Paul suffered is to understand what it means to be converted. So hang with me here for a minute. Now, Paul later writes about the thorn in his flesh, which he, he asked to be removed. He, sa- he said he prayed a number of times for God to remove it, and God said no. Um, Dallas Willard's take on that is he said the thorn in Paul's flesh was his refusal to be accepted into the full fellowship as an apostle. He said that the thorn in Paul's flesh was knowing that he had studied at the feet of Gamaliel. He understood how Jesus fulfilled the scripture better than anybody else. And yet he was never fully accepted as a disciple by the other disciples. Be that as it may, I still don't think that's the worst of what Saul suffered. Because even though we don't know a lot about Saul, what we do know is significant. Was that he was zealous for the crushing of of Christianity, that his motive in life was to put an end to the practice of following the way. He went out of his way, literally, geographically out of his way, was going all over to put out the fire that the Holy Spirit was starting in the church around there. And then he has this experience with Jesus. And notice, Peterson says, has, has Jesus asking Paul, why are you out to get me? Other versions will say, why are you persecuting me? I believe the intense suffering that Paul suffered for the rest of his life was recognizing what he had done to the Lord Jesus in his ignorance. Now, again, I'm submitting this to you. It's for you to to take and to figure out, to agree with me or not. Don't believe me just because I have the microphone. That's not the way it works here. But I can imagine night after night, Paul going to sleep and then all of a sudden being woken up with the image of Stephen being stoned and realized that he had cheered that on, that he had been the one who encouraged the imprisonment the persecution of the very God that he now knew to be God, the very person that he called knew now to be Jesus. And y'all, look, I believe in the supernatural. I believe that Paul was blinded. I believe that Paul was knocked down. But I also believe this, that that blinding revelation could have been this, that as he's on his donkey going to Damascus, with breathing these threats, and he's got it. He's recalling in his mind that incredible sermon that Donnie preached on three weeks ago. He's, recall, he's going over in his mind the things that Stephen said. And we even asked a question to the teaching team, like, why, why is there so much detail given in Stephen's message, right? And I was just thinking about this, Donnie, as, as I was preparing for this. I wonder if it's not that we can somehow hear the words that were also reverberating through Paul's mind as he's on that donkey going into Damascus, and then it hits him. He's right. Yes, a blinding light, but also a blinding revelation that everything that he had invested in his life in, everything he had counted on being right was wrong. 
that the very thing he thought he was doing that was good and true and right was actually evil and demonic and misguided. Y'all, that kind of revelation will knock you off your donkey. So was there scales on his eyes? Yeah. But there were also scales on his heart. There were scales on his mind that had to come off. There is an economic theory called the sunk cost theory. Anybody familiar with this? So sunk cost theory says this, that after you've invested in something on a, on a regular basis for a long time, that if that thing that you're investing in all of a sudden starts to go down, where the logical thing to do would be to sell, to get rid of it. That by the practice of investing in it regularly over, and over a long time, that what happens, most people actually, when it starts to go down, they won't sell. You know what they'll do? Buy more. And that as the decrease in value increases, the rate of investment actually increases. And economists and philosophers are like, why does this happen? It's totally illogical to, to double down on a losing bet. Gamblers do this as well. They'll have a losing hand. They'll double down. It's totally illogical. Why do they do it? Thunk, sunk cost theory is because to cut your loss to sell means to admit you were wrong. It means that to admit you have invested in something and you were wrong about it. To really understand the depth of the conversion experience that Paul has, we have to understand he had invested everything in the way being wrong, in Jesus being a fraud. He had invested his whole identity in being the one who was going to uphold the righteousness and sanctity of the Pharisees and the faith. And he had to overcome that sunk cost theory reaction, which would be to double down. And it took for him this Damascus Road experience. It took this blinding, but it also took something more, which we're going to see. So Ananias went and found the house, placed hands on blind Saul and said, Brother Saul, the master sent me, the same Jesus you saw on your way here. He sent me so you could see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. No sooner were the words out of his mouth than something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. He could see again. He got to his feet, was baptized, and sat down with them to a hearty meal. What, again, what did it take for Ananias to greet Saul as brother? Here's a man that came in to, to persecute them, to lock them up, to, to put them in prison. And now Ananias goes and calls him brother, lays hands and this is we see is where we start to see that Paul's conversion experience wasn't complete when he was knocked off his donkey. But it is being completed by a process of interaction with the church, which is incredibly important for us to see. Saul spent a few days getting acquainted with the Damascus disciples, but then went right to work, wasting no time preaching in the meeting places that Jesus was the Son of God. Short sermon. Interesting, right? How many verses did we get for Stephen's sermon? 70? Paul's gets half. Jesus is the Son of God. 
This was the revelation that Paul got. It's what he immediately started to preach. And y'all, everything that Paul says from here on out is just excursus on this. It never changes. This is Paul's message that he starts with, that he walks out, and that he ends with. Everything that he wrote is all commentary on this message. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the one. Jesus is the way. He goes on to say this. They were caught off guard by this, not sure they could trust him. They kept saying, isn't this the man who wreaked havoc in Jerusalem among the believers? And didn't he come here to do the same thing, arrest us and drag us off to jail in Jerusalem for sentencing by the high priest? But their suspicions didn't slow Saul down for even a minute. His momentum was up now, and he plowed straight into opposition, disarming the Damascus Jews and trying to show them that this Jesus was the Messiah. After this had gone on quite a long time, some Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul got wind of it. They were watching the city gates around the clock so they could kill him. One night, the disciples engineered his escape by lowering over the wall in a basket. No one is so hated as the traitor, right? And this is what we're going to see. This is part of the suffering. In addition to knowing what he had done was the, the real physical threat that Paul encountered. Because he had been chief among those persecuting. Now he's on the other side. You can bet he had a bullseye on his back for the rest of the time. And indeed, we see that as we go. Back in Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. They didn't trust him one bit. And again, here's, here's another major shift we see, right? Because up until this point, the disciples have been pretty bold, right? I mean, they even got thrown in prison. Angel releases them, and the next morning, they're back in the temple preaching. I mean, they don't seem easily cowed, but yet here, all of a sudden, They've lost their spine. They've lost their nerve with this. Then Barnabas took him under his wing, introduced him to the apostles, and stood up for him. Told them how Saul had seen and spoken to the master on the Damascus road, and how in Damascus itself he had laid his life on the line with his bold preaching in Jesus' name. After that, he was accepted as one of them, hold on to that thought because we see in later verses that he was accepted but not really accepted going in and out of Jerusalem with no questions asked uninhibited as he preached in the pastor's name now just like Ananias Barnabas comes up now we know more about Barnabas we know that he was he is the one who has set his opposition as being generous and truthful in opposition to Ananias and Sapphira we also see him as Paul's traveling companion on his first missionary journey as the one who takes John Mark when, when Paul wants nothing to do with John Mark, Barnabas takes him and they go do their own missionary group work. But still, Barnabas is one of these underrated characters. He's one of these people that is incredible in their impact and influence, but not widely recognized with that. All of us need that Barnabas. And we all need to be a Barnabas with this. So what we're seeing is a progression in Paul's conversion that I believe starts with hearing Stephen's sermon. I believe that that's where Paul's conversion 
starts not on the Damascus Road, but in Jerusalem, holding the cloaks for the people who are stoning Stephen. So it starts with the hearing of the word, the hearing of the truth. And then it takes this supernatural encounter with God to to pull the scales off the eye, to give you revelation in a way to come to know what you may think you know, right? Because knowing is not just a process of hearing. Knowing is not just a process of reading something. Knowing is experiential. Knowing comes from an encounter. Knowing comes when what we've heard all of a sudden becomes what we experience with that. So Paul's conversion experience continues with this encounter, but it's not finished until he finds his place in the church. Until he finds the person who welcomes him in, Ananias, who gives him the way, and then the person who champions him, the Barnabas there. Y'all, do you, do you see the progression here? We can, we can want that mountaintop experience, right? We all want that. We all want that individual, dramatic encounter with God. And listen, that's not bad. And when those times come, they're sweet. But they can't do it by themselves. That won't do it for you. Those experiences in isolation will ultimately fade, falter, and fail. It has to be followed up with the Ananias, with the Barnabas, with the community. Well, let's go on. But then he ran afoul of a group called the Hellenists, right? We know who the Hellenists are. We've been studying this. He, has been engaged, he had been engaged in a running argument with them who plotted his murder. When his friends learned of the plot, they got him out of town, took him to Caesarea, and shipped him off to Tarsus. Death threat number two. One chapter, two death threats. Paul's going to have a rough time, okay? Jesus wasn't kidding when he said, you're going to suffer following me. Things calmed down after that, and the church had smooth sailing for a while. All over the country, Judea, Samaria, Galilee, the church grew. They were permeated with a deep sense of reverence for God. The Holy Spirit was with them, strengthening them, and they prospered wonderfully. So let's ask a few questions here in addition to what we've been asking. What was it like? What was it like to welcome someone who had threatened you? Like I would like to ask Acts. What was it like to stand side by side with someone who had said, I'm, I'm here to kill you. I'm here to put you in prison. Someone who threatened to break up your family, take your job, kick you out of your house. Who are the people right now that we would have a really hard time worshiping with? Who's that person right now that you hold animosity in your heart towards? antipathy, that if they were to have an encounter with Jesus or to come sit by you, that you would be constantly checking over your shoulder with that. What was it like for them with this? 
And the second thing is, like, how did they navigate the message? Like, because what we see is we see, we see John and Peter and the apostles, all these people who had walked with Jesus and, and seen him feed 5,000 and been to the Mount of Transfiguration, been there at the cross. We don't have any indication that Paul had an experience with Jesus during his life. And yet now he's coming out, and in a way what we're going to see is he's going to define the message of the church. How did they navigate that? How did they navigate what they were going to share about Jesus? How did, how did they do that collectively? It, it's intriguing to me is to think about the group dynamics of how did they do that? How did they, how, obviously we know the Holy Spirit is, is working through the church, but, but just the practical part, how did, how did they do that? And then I think Acts ask us, what prerequisites are we putting on people before we include them in worship? Okay, you call yourself a follower of the way, but are you doing this? And are you doing this? And do you believe this? Do you act this way? Do you live this way? What prerequisites are we putting on people before we include them in fellowship? with that. I mean, the church here is, is including someone whose hands are literally bloody from murder of one of their own. And they're, albeit tenuously and reluctantly at times, they're including this person in their fellowship. What about us? And it may seem like a different question, but I believe it's part and parcel with the first one is how much of our ongoing conversation, conversion, how much of our on, ongoing conversion are we trying to do on our own? How much are we going off seeking these mountaintop experiences, these Damascus Road experiences? How much are we dependent on ourselves, my personal quiet time, my personal Bible study, my personal encounter with God, apart from the rest of the body of Christ to define our spirituality, to define our conversion? How much of that are we walking out by ourselves? Now listen, everybody's got responsibility. Y'all know. We all got to work. We all got to do effort. We're all responsible to put in this. But none of us is sufficient to do that on our own. I'm not. Y'all ain't. We hear the word, we encounter, we have the experience, and then we walk it out in the context of community of people who will pray for us, as Ananias did, who will champion us, as Barnabas did. And likewise, we are to be the Ananiases. We are to be the Barnabases for each other with that. Conversions, even dramatic ones like Saul's, are never done alone. We all need each other. And honestly, y'all, the weird thing here is the people that we need the most are the people who are the most unlike us. I wish it were different. Because we're a real self-segregating bunch. 
you know? We just naturally, as human beings, gravitate towards people who look like us, smell like us, talk like us, like the same things we like. It's comfortable. And we need times like that. We need spaces where we can feel we're connected with people on, on a number of different reasons. We don't grow there. Rarely do we grow there. We grow when we're in community with people who aren't like us. Think different. Act different. Read different books. Watch different movies. Go to listen to different music. Come from different places. That's where we really grow. That's what we need. And we need each other in that if our conversion is to continue. And y'all, it's going to cost us. And maybe that's what it does cost us, is our comfort. Maybe that's what it does cost us, in our context, is our convenience with that. But it's going to cost all of us something. Some costs are going to be more dramatic than others. But it will cost all of us something. And here's the thing, we don't get to choose. We don't get to choose what it will cost us. Just like Ananias arguing with Jesus said, don't you know God? (laughs) Right? How many of us have said that? I've said that. God, don't you know? Yeah, like, hold on a minute, Jesus. Have you seen my bank account lately? Don't you know what you're asking? Have you seen my plans for my life? Don't you know? Have you, have you, have you seen, Jesus, who I am and what you're asking of me? God's, John, John, I got you. I've seen it. Now get to it. It's going to cost us something. And look, going to the mountains are great. I, I just spent a lot of time there. It's an amazing thing to walk up, to wake up on a Rocky Mountain morning. The clear stream running over the rocks, campfire, good cup of coffee, listening to the birds, watching the sky open up. It's an incredible thing to be up on the rocks at Canyonland, watch the Milky Way just open up over your head. You feel close to God. You feel close to the Creator with that. That's not where the growth happens. Those are good. We need those times. We deeply need those times. If you haven't had one of those in a while, go get you one. But that's not where you're going to grow. You're going to grow here. You're going to grow with these people. You're going to grow in the mundane, walking it out every day with the Barnabases and the Ananiases and with the Sauls. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And we are going to practice being followers of the way here as we do here at Grace Church. So this is the way it looks as a way of responding, because again, I said it earlier, you're not to believe me because I have the microphone. That's not how it works here. You, you work this out on your own. You go back and you read the text. You go to your community group, your grace group. You wrestle it out. You wrestle it out with your, with your relationships that are close. Make this your own, because hearing is just part of it. And right now, but you also need a purpose to do that. You need to purpose what you need to do from this Sunday morning. So this is a time of reflection.
in a time of worship where you purpose, you say, God, what is it that I am supposed to do about what I heard today? What am I supposed to do about what I heard today? Write it down. Take a picture. Tell somebody do something, but don't leave before you purpose how you're supposed to respond. We're also going to take communion because Jesus told us to do something. Jesus said, when you gather together, do this. Come to this table where there is no head, there is no foot, where everyone is welcome. Everyone is welcome. There's no barrier here by age or gender, by income or education. All are welcome at this table. And we take this meal together. What we're going to ask you to do, what we're doing this summer as part of our practice is come up, take the elements, hold them, sit close here, sit close by, and then after everyone has them, we'll come up and we'll take them together. Then after that, you can stay there. You can return to your seat. We'll take up the offering right after that. With that, we take the offering as sign and symbol that no one here is without something to give and no one here is without a need to receive. So that's why we practice giving here. We practice giving and receiving as part of our worship, sign and symbol, both the giving and receiving at the table, the giving and receiving of our money, and the giving and receiving of our praise. We give that to God as practice here at Grace. So thank you for being here. And after we've done this, Cecily will come up and give a benediction, and we'll go out. As we have been gathered together, we will likewise be sent into the world as followers of the way. Thank you for being here this morning. My God, my Savior, 
has ransomed me and like a flood his mercy reigns unending love amazing grace the Lord has promised good to me his word my hope secure chains are gone I've been set free my God my Savior has ransomed me and like a flood his mercy reigns unending love amazing grace chains are gone I've been set free my God my Savior has ransomed me and like a flood his mercy reigns unending love amazing grace my chains are gone, I've been set free, my God, my Savior has ransomed me, and like a flood, His mercy reigns, unending love, amazing. shall soon dissolve like snow the sun forbear to shine but God who calls me below will be Last night, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. He took the cup and he poured it. He said, this is my blood poured out for you, a sign of the new covenant. As we do this thing, as we take these things, we eat and drink them. We also take fellowship in the Lord Jesus Christ. So take and eat and drink.
world of sadness from wherever you've been. Come, brokenhearted, the rescue begin. Come, find your mercy, oh sinner, come near. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. Earth has no sorrow that heaven So lay down your burdens, lay down your shame, all who are broken, lift up your face. Come as you are, come as you are. There's hope for the hopeless and all those who've strayed. Come sit at the table, come taste the grace. There's rest for the weary and rest that endures. Earth has no sorrow heaven can't care. So lay down your burdens. Lay down your shame. All who are broken lift up your
of our God and King. Lift up your voice and hear us sing. Oh, praise meeting after church is canceled today and then for our benediction 
Um, Grace Church, we are called to go out into the world as witness to the power and presence of the gospel. So go in unity to serve the weak, help those that suffer, return no one evil for evil, but honor everyone that you meet. And love the Lord while rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit, which is God's special gift to each one of us. And may the love of God, the grace of Jesus, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us and abide in us until we gather again. Amen.